0: Section Five of Celebrated Crimes, Volume Six, Part Two: The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandre Dumas, translated by George Burnham Ives. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section Five. I had several conversations with the Queen Mother during the troubles in France, and Her Majesty always seemed to fear that if the existence of this prince should be discovered during the lifetime of his brother, the young King, malcontents would make it a pretext for rebellion because many medical men hold that the last-born of twins is in reality the elder, and if so, he was king by right, while many others have a different opinion. In spite of this dread, the queen could never bring herself to destroy the written evidence of his birth, because in case of the death of the young king she intended to have his twin brother proclaimed. She told me often that the written proofs were in her strong-box. I gave the ill-starred prince such an education as I should have liked to receive myself, and no acknowledged son of a king ever had a better. The only thing for which I have to reproach myself is that, without intending it, I caused him great unhappiness, for when he was nineteen years old he had a burning desire to know who he was, and as he saw that I was determined to be silent, growing more firm the more he tormented me with questions, he made up his mind henceforward to disguise his curiosity and to make me think that he believed himself a love-child of my own. He began to call me father, although when we were alone I often assured him that he was mistaken. But at length I gave up combating this belief, which he perhaps only feigned to make me speak, and allowed him to think he was my son. Contradicting him no more, but while he continued to dwell on this subject, he was meantime making every effort to find out who he really was. Two years passed thus, when, through an unfortunate piece of forgetfulness on my part, for which I greatly blame myself, he became acquainted with the truth, He knew that the king had lately sent me several messengers, and, once having carelessly forgotten to lock up a casket containing letters from the queen and the cardinals, he read part and divined the rest through his natural intelligence, and later confessed to me that he had carried off the letter which told most explicitly of his birth. I can recall that from this time on his manner to me showed no longer that respect for me in which I had brought him up, but became hectoring and rude and that i could not imagine the reason of the change for i never found out that he had searched my papers and he never revealed to me how he got at the casket whether he was aided by some workman whom he did not wish to betray or had employed other means one day however he unguardedly asked me to show him the portraits of the late and the present king i answered that those that existed were so poor that i was waiting till better ones were taken before having them in my house This answer, which did not satisfy him, called forth the request to be allowed to go to Dijon. I found out afterwards that he wanted to see a portrait of the king which was there, and to get to the court, which was just then at Saint-Jean-de-Lutz, because of the approaching marriage with the Infanta, so that he might compare himself with his brother and see if there were any resemblance between them. Having knowledge of this plan, I never let him out of my sight. The young prince was at this time as beautiful as Cupid, and through the intervention of Cupid himself he succeeded in getting hold of a portrait of his brother. One of the upper servants of the house, a young girl, had taken his fancy, and he lavished such caresses on her, and inspired her with so much love, that although the whole household was strictly forbidden to give him anything without my permission, she procured him a portrait of the king. The unhappy prince saw the likeness at once. Indeed, no one could help seeing it, for the one portrait would serve equally well for either brother, and the sight produced such a fit of fury that he came to me crying out, There is my brother, and this tells me who I am, holding out a letter from Cardinal Mazarin, which he had stolen from me, and making a great commotion in my house. The dread, lest the prince should escape and succeed in appearing at the marriage of his brother, made me so uneasy that I sent off a messenger to the king, to tell him that my casket had been opened, and asking for instructions, the king sent back word through the cardinal that we were both to be shut up till further orders and that the prince was to be made to understand that the cause of our common misfortune was his absurd claim i have since shared his prison but i believe that a decree of release has arrived from my heavenly judge and for my soul's health and for my ward's sake i make this declaration that he may know what measures to take in order to put an end to his ignominious estate should the king die without children can any oath imposed under threats oblige one to be silent about such incredible events, which it is nevertheless necessary that posterity should know. Such were the contents of the historical document given by the regent to the princess, and it suggests a crowd of questions. Who was the prince's governor? Was he a Burgundian? Was he simply a landed proprietor with some property in a country house in Burgundy? How far was his estate from Dijon? He must have been a man of note, for he enjoyed the most intimate confidence at the court of Louis the thirteenth, either by virtue of his office or because he was a favourite of the king, the queen, and Cardinal Richelieu. Can we learn from the list of nobles of Burgundy what member of their body disappeared from public life, along with a young ward whom he had brought up in his own house just after the marriage of Louis the fourteenth? Why did he not attach his signature to the Declaration, which appears to be a hundred years old? Did he dictate it when so near death that he had not strength to sign it? How did it find its way out of prison? And so forth. There is no answer to all these questions, and I, for my part, cannot undertake to affirm that the document is genuine. Abbé Souleville relates that he one day pressed the marshal for an answer to some questions on the matter, asking, amongst other things, if it were not true that the prisoner was an elder brother of Louis Fourteenth, born without the knowledge of Louis Thirteenth. The marshal appeared very much embarrassed, and although he did not entirely refuse to answer, what he said was not very explanatory. He averred that this important personage was neither the illegitimate brother of Louis Fourteenth, nor the Duke of Monmouth, nor the Comte de Vermandois, nor the Duke de Beaufort, and so on, as so many writers had asserted. He called all their writings mere inventions, but added that almost every one of them had got hold of some true incidents as for instance the order to kill the prisoner should he make himself known finally he acknowledged that he knew the state's secret and used the following words all that i can tell you abby is that when the prisoner died at the beginning of the century at a very advanced age he had ceased to be of such importance as when at the beginning of his reign louis the fourteenth shut him up for weighty reasons of state the above was written down under the eyes of the marshal and when Abbe Soulavie entreated him to say something further, which, while not actually revealing the secret, would yet satisfy his questioner's curiosity, the Marshal answered, Read M. de Voltaire's latest writings on the subject, especially his concluding words, and reflect on them. With the exception of Du Loire, all the critics have treated Soulavie's narrative with the most profound contempt and we must confess that if it was an invention it was a monstrous one and that the concoction of the famous note in cipher was abominable such was the great secret in order to find it out i had to allow myself five twelve seventeen fifteen fourteen one three times by eight three but unfortunately for those who would defend the morals of mademoiselle de valois it would be difficult to traduce the character of herself her lover and her father for what one knows of the trio justifies one in believing that the more infamous the conduct imputed to them the more likely it is to be true we cannot see the force of the objection that louvois would not have written in the following terms to saint mars in sixteen eighty seven about a bastard son of anne of austria i see no objection in your removing chevalier de from the prison in which he is confined and putting your prisoner there till the one you are preparing for him is ready to receive. And we cannot understand those who ask if St. Mars, following the example of the minister, would have said of a prince until he is installed in the prison which is being prepared for him here, which has a chapel adjoining. Why should he have expressed himself otherwise? Does it evidence an abatement of consideration to call a prisoner a prisoner and his prison a prison? A certain monsieur de Saint-Michiel, published in eight volume in 1791 at strasbourg in paris entitled the true man said to be the iron mask a work in which on incontestable proofs is made known to whom the celebrated misfortune was born and when and where it was born the wording of the title will give an idea of the bizarre and barbarous jargon in which the whole book is written it would be difficult to imagine the vanity and self-satisfaction which inspire this new reader of riddles if he had found the philosopher's stone or made a discovery which would transform the world he could not exhibit more pride and pleasure all things considered the incontestable proofs of his theory do not decide the question definitely or place it above all attempts at refutation any more than does the evidence on which the other theories which preceded and followed his rest but what he lacks before all the things is the talent for arranging and using his materials With the most ordinary skill he might have evolved a theory which would have defied criticism at least as successfully as the others, and he might have supported it by proofs which, if not incontestable, for no one has produced such, had at least moral presumption in their favor which has great weight in such a mysterious and obscure affair in trying to explain which one can never leave on one side the respect shown by Louvois to the prisoner to whom he always spoke standing and with uncovered head. According to Monsieur de Saint-Michel, the man in the iron mask was a legitimate son of Anne of Austria and Mazarin. He avers that Mazarin was only a deacon and not a priest when he became cardinal, having never taken priest's orders according to the testimony of the princess Palantine, consort to Philip I, Duc d'Orléans, and that it was therefore possible for him to marry, and that he did marry Anne of Austria in secret old madame beauvais principal woman of the bedchamber to the queen-mother knew of this ridiculous marriage and as the price of her secrecy obliged the queen to comply with all her whims to this circumstance the principal bedchamber women owe the extensive privileges accorded them ever since in this country letter of the Duchess d'orlaine thirteenth of september seventeen thirteen the queen-mother consort of louis the thirteenth had done worse than simply to fall in love with mazarin she had married him for he had never been an ordained priest he had only taken deacon's orders if he had been a priest his marriage would have been impossible he grew terribly tired of the good queen-mother and did not live happily with her which was only what he deserved for making such a marriage letter of the Duchess d'Orleans, second november seventeen seventeen she the queen-mother was quite easy in her conscience about cardinal mazarin he was not in priest's orders and so could mary the secret passage by which he reached the queen's rooms every evening still exists in the palais royal letter of the duchesse d'olienne second july seventeen nineteen the queen's manner of conducting affairs is influenced by the passion which dominates her when she and the cardinal converse together their ardent love for each other is betrayed by their looks and gestures it is plain to see that when obliged to part for a time they do it with great reluctance if what people say is true, that they are properly married, and that their union has been blessed by Père Vincent, the missioner, there is no harm in all that goes on between them, either in public or in private. Roquette civile contre la conclusion de la paix, 1649. The man in the iron mask told the apothecary in the Bastille that he thought he was about sixty years of age in the questions sur Encyclopédie. Thus he must have been born in 1644 just at the time when Anne of Austria was invested with the royal power, though it was really exercised by Mazarin. Can we find any incident recorded in history which lends support to the supposition that Anne of Austria had a son whose birth was kept as secret as her marriage to Mazarin? In 1644, Anne of Austria, being dissatisfied with her apartments in the Louvre, moved to the Palais-Royal, which had been left to the king by Richelieu, Shortly after taking up residence there, she was very ill with a severe attack of jaundice, which was caused, in the opinion of the doctors, by worry, anxiety, and overwork, and which pulled her down greatly. Memoir de Madame de Motteville, 4 volumes, 12 months, volume 1, page 194. This anxiety, caused by the pressure of public business, was most probably only dwelt on as a pretext for a pretended attack of illness. Anne of Austria had no cause for worry and anxiety till 1649, She did not begin to complain of the despotism of Mazarin till towards the end of 1645. Ibid, volume 1, pages 272 to 273. She went frequently to the theatre during her first year of widowhood, but took care to hide herself from view in her box. Ibid, volume 1, page 342. Abbé Soulevy, in volume 6 of the Memoir de Richelieu, published in 1793, controverted the opinions of Monsieur de Saint-Michel, and again advanced those which he had published some time before supporting them by a new array of reasons the fruitlessness of research in the archives of the bastille and the importance of the political events which were happening diverted the attention of the public for some years from this subject in the year eighteen hundred however the magazine encyclopedique published uh, volume six page 472 an article entitled memoirs on historical problems and the method of solving them applied to the man with the iron mask signed c d o in which the author maintained that the prisoner was the first minister of the duke of mantua and says his name was girolamo magni And the same year an octavo volume of one hundred and forty two pages was produced by m roux it bore the title historical and critical research on the man with the iron mask which result in certain notions about this prisoner these researches brought to light a secret correspondence relative to certain negotiations and intrigues and to the abduction of a secretary of the Duke of Mantua, whose name was Mattioli, and not Girolamo Magni. In 1802, an octavo pamphlet containing eleven pages, of which the author was perhaps Baron Levierre but which was signed Reth, was published, and took the form of a letter to General Jourdan, and was dated from Turin, and gave many details about Mattioli and his family. It was entitled True Key to the History of the Man in the Iron Mask it proved that the secretary of the duke of mantua was carried off masked and imprisoned by order of louis the fourteenth in sixteen seventy nine but it did not succeed in establishing as an undoubted fact that the secretary and the man in the iron mask were one and the same person it may be remembered that m crawford writing in seventeen ninety eight had said in his histoire de la bastille eight volumes four hundred and seventy four pages i cannot doubt that the man in the iron mask was the son of anne of austria but i am unable to decide whether he was a twin-brother of louis the fourteenth or was born while the king and queen lived apart or during her widowhood m crawford in his mixtures of history and literature from a portfolio quarto eighteen o nine octavo eighteen seventeen demolished the theory advanced by rue fazelac in eighteen twenty five m Delort discovered in the archive several letters relating to mattioli and published his histoire de l'homme en masse eight volumes and this work was translated into English by George Agar-Ellis and retranslated into French in 1830 under the title Authentic History of the Prisoner of State, Known as the Iron Mask. It is in this work that the suggestion is made that the captive was the second son of Oliver Cromwell. In 1826, Monsieur de Taulle wrote that in his opinion the masked prisoner was none other than the Armenian patriarch but six years later the great success of my drama at the odéon converted nearly every one to the version of which soulevis was the chief exponent the bibliophile jacob is mistaken in asserting that i followed a tradition preserved in the family of the duc de Choiseul. monsieur le duc de bassano sent me a copy made under his personal supervision of a document drawn up for napoleon containing the results of some researches made by his orders on the subject of the man in the iron mask the original manuscript, as well as that of the Mémoire de Duc de Richelieu, were, the Duke told me, kept at the Foreign Office. In 1834, the Journal of the Institut Historique published a letter from M. Auguste Villard, who stated that he had also made a copy of this document for the late Comte de Montelivet, home secretary under the Empire. M. Dufay de Lyon gave his Histoire de la Bastille to the world in the same year, and was inclined to believe that the prisoner was a son of Buckingham. Besides the many important personages on whom the famous mask had been placed, there was one whom everyone had forgotten, although his name had been put forward by the Minister Chamayotte. This was the celebrated superintendent of Finance, Nicolas Fouquet. In 1837, Jacob, armed with documents and extracts, once more occupied himself with this Chinese puzzle on which so much ingenuity had been lavished, but of which no one had as yet got all the pieces into their places. Let us see if he succeeded better than his forerunners. The first feeling he awakes is one of surprise. It seems odd that he should again bring up the case of Fouquet, who was condemned to imprisonment for life in 1664, confined in Pignerol under the care of Saint-Mars, and whose death was announced falsely, according to Jacob, on March 23, 1680. The first thing to look for in trying to get at the true history of the mask is a sufficient reason of state to account for the persistent concealment of the prisoner's features till his death and next an explanation of the respect shown him by louvois whose attitude towards him would have been extraordinary in any age but was doubly so during the reign of louis the fourteenth whose courtiers would have been the last persons in the world to render homage to the misfortunes of a man in disgrace with their master whatever the real motive of the king's anger against fouquet may have been whether louis thought he arrogated to himself too much power or aspired to rival his master in the hearts of some of the king's mistresses or even presumed to raise his eyes higher still was not the utter ruin the life-long captivity of his enemy enough to satiate the vengeance of the king what could he desire more why should his anger which seemed slaked in sixteen sixty four burst forth into hotter flames seventeen years later and lead him to inflict a new punishment according to the bibliophile the king being wearied by the continual petitions for pardon addressed to him by the superintendent's family ordered them to be told that he was dead to rid himself of their supplications colbert's hatred says he was the immediate cause of fouquet's fall but even if this hatred hastened the catastrophe are we to suppose that it pursued the delinquent beyond the sentence through the long years of captivity and renewing its energy infected the minds of the king and his counsellors if that were so how shall we explain the respect shown by louvois colbert would not have stood uncovered before fouquet in prison why should colbert's colleague have done so it must however be confessed that of all existing theories this one thanks to the unlimited learning and research of the bibliophile has the greatest number of documents with the various interpretations thereof of the greatest profusions of dates on its side for it is certain first that the precautions taken when fouquet was sent to Pignerol resembled in every respect those employed later by the custodians of the iron mask both at the ile saint marguerite and at the bastille second that the majority of the traditions relative to the masked prisoner might apply to fouquet third that the iron mask was first heard of immediately after the announcement of the death of fouquet in 1680 fourth that there exists no irrefragable proof that fouquet's death really occurred in the above year the decree of the court of justice dated twentieth december sixteen sixty four banished fouquet from the kingdom for life but the king was of the opinion that it would be dangerous to let the said fouquet leave the country in consideration of his intimate knowledge of the most important matters of state consequently the sentence of perpetual banishment was commuted into that of perpetual imprisonment Reçu de défense de Monsieur Fouquet. The instructions signed by the king and remitted to Saint-Mars forbid him to permit Fouquet to hold any spoken or written communication with any one whatsoever, or to leave his apartments for any cause, not even for exercise. The great mistrust felt by Louvois pervades all his letters to Saint-Mars. The precautions which he ordered to be kept up were quite as stringent as in the case of the iron mask. The report of the discovery of a shirt covering with writing by a friar, which Abbé Popon mentions, may perhaps be traced to the following extracts from two letters written by Louvois to Saint-Mars. Your letter has come to hand with the new handkerchief on which Monsieur Fouquet has written, 18th December, 1665. You can tell him that if he continues to employ his table linen as notepaper, he must not be surprised if you refuse to supply him with any more." 21st November, 1667. Père Papon asserts that a valet who served the masked prisoner died in his master's room. Now the man who waited on Fouquet, and who, like him, was sentenced to lifelong imprisonment, died in February 1680. See Letter of Louvois to Saint-Mars, 12th March, 1680. Echoes of incidents which took place at Pignerol might have reached the ile Sainte marguerite when Saint-Mars transferred his former prisoner from one fortress to the other. The fine clothes and linen, the books, all those luxuries—in fact—that were lavished on the masked prisoner were not withheld from Fouquet. The furniture of a second room at Pignerol cost over twelve hundred livres. See letters of Louvois, twelfth of December, sixteen sixty-five, and twenty-second of February, sixteen sixty-six. It is also known that until the year sixteen eighty, Saint Mars had only two important prisoners at Pignerol: Fouquet and Lauson. However his former prisoner of pignerol according to dujonca's diary must have reached the latter fortress before the end of august sixteen eighty one when saint mars went to exile as governor so that it was in the interval between the twenty third march sixteen eighty the alleged date of fouquet's death and the first september sixteen eighty one that the iron mask appeared at pignerol and yet saint mars took only two prisoners to exile one of these was probably the man in the iron mask. The other, who must have been Mattioli, died before the year 1687, for when Saint-Mars took over the governorship in the month of January of that year of Isle-Saint-Marguerite, he brought only one prisoner thither with him. I have taken such good measures to guard my prisoner that I can answer to you for his safety. Lettre de Saint-Mar, 20th January, 1687. In the correspondence of Louvois with Saint-Mars, we find it is true mention of the death of Fouquet on March 23rd, 1680, but in his later correspondence Louvois never says the late Monsieur Fouquet, but speaks of him as usual as Monsieur Fouquet, simply. Most historians have given as a fact that Fouquet was interred in the same vault as his father in the chapel of saint francois de Sales in the convent church belonging to the Sisters of the Order of the Visitation sainte Saint-Marie founded in the beginning of the seventeenth century by madame de chantal but proof to the contrary exists for the subterranean portion of saint francis's chapel was closed in 1786 the last person interred there being adelaide Felicite broulard with whom ended the house of sillery the convent was shut up in 1790 and the church given over to the protestants in 1802 who continued to respect the tombs in 1836, the cathedral chapter of Bourges claimed the remains of one of their archbishops buried there in the time of the Sisters of Saint marie On this occasion, all the coffins were examined and all the inscriptions carefully copied, but the name of Nicolas Fouquet is absent. Voltaire says in his Dictionnaire Philosophique, article Anna, It is most remarkable that no one knows where the celebrated Fouquet was buried but in spite of all these coincidences this carefully constructed theory was wrecked on the same point on which the theory that the prisoner was either the duke of monmouth or the comte de vermandois came to grief vis-à-vis a letter from barbezieu dated thirteenth august sixteen ninety one in which occur the words the prisoner whom you have had in your charge for twenty years according to this testimony which jacob had successfully used against his predecessors The prisoner referred to could not have been Fouquet, who completed his twenty-seventh year of captivity in 1691, if still alive. We have now impartially set before our readers all the opinions which have been held in regard to the solution of this formidable enigma. For ourselves, we hold the belief that the man in the iron mask stood on the steps of the throne. Although the mystery cannot be said to be definitely cleared up, one thing stands out firmly established among the mass of conjecture we have gathered together. And that is, that wherever the prisoner appeared, he was ordered to wear a mask on pain of death. His features, therefore, might during half a century have brought about his recognition from one end of France to the other. Consequently, during the same space of time, there existed in France a face resembling the prisoners known through all her provinces, even to her most secluded isle. Whose face could this be, if not that of Louis the Fourteenth, twin brother of the man in the iron mask?' To nullify this simple and natural conclusion, strong evidence will be required. Our task has been limited to that of an examining judge at a trial, and we feel sure that our readers will not be sorry that we have left them to choose amid all the conflicting explanations of the puzzle. No consistent narrative that we might have concocted would, it seems to us, have been half as interesting to them as to allow them to follow the devious paths opened up by those who entered on the search for the heart of the mystery." Everything connected with the masked prisoner arouses the most vivid curiosity. And what end had we in view? Was it not to denounce a crime and to brand the perpetrator thereof? The facts, as they stand, are sufficient for our object and speak more eloquently than if used to adorn a tale or to prove an ingenious theory. End of Section 5 End of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 6, Part 2 The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandre Dumas, translated by George Burnham Ives. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.